0: Welcome to a snowy Sunday night. Gonna have fun tonight. Got to see, a, that was a load of little ones getting dedicated today. Love seeing people deciding that God is going to be first in their family and in their kids' lives, and deciding that that's going to be the way that they raise their kids, as they dedicate them to God. Tonight, we get to talk about one of my favorite Bible stories. Now, it's not my favorite because it's the coolest there are some of the stories that I like because you follow the hero and you're like, that's awesome. This is not that story. Um, <clears throat> all right, my throat's a little dry. Some of the stories, I like them because the, he, the character in the middle does stupid stuff. Um, <clears throat> I've discovered that one of the, the most loved disciples in our day is Peter. Because people relate to Peter. They're like, he sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. I do that. And like, there's all these different areas that you're like, oh, I I just connect. And today's story, (coughs) I connect because he just makes some stupid mistakes. And and I got to preface this because a lot of you guys, most of you, have heard this story. If you've never been in church— you've heard of this story. You may not be familiar with all the details, but you've heard of the story. And so when we read it, a lot of times we have our like 2,000 year or more than that. um, We have thousands of years of perspective. We know the end of the story from the beginning of the story and we read it and we just look at the first and you're like, you're an idiot. Um, But you have to like re-experience it, like almost rewind, erase the flannel graph, and go, okay, we're going to encounter this over again, and I want to see this, and, and when we do, we, we discover that they're not as much of an idiot as we'd like them to be, because we end up making a lot of the same mistakes. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to follow along with Jonah tonight. So it's a, it's a little book of the Bible, um, but we're going to start in Jonah chapter 1. Verse one, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, when I first read that, if I can just erase everything that I know about the the story, this starts off, and I'm like, this is awesome. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Jonah in a telegraph. A deep impression in his heart. A dream. A voice. Like, it doesn't say. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. I can't tell you how many students, how many adults, Christians I've talked to who said, I just want to hear God. Would God just speak to me? And they're like, I I hear other people say that God spoke to them and and that they long for this. And I look and I'm like, okay, this story's starting out awesome. God speaks to Jonah. This is what so many Christians are praying for. Like, Awesome. And then I get to the next verse. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And I read this, and I'm like, okay, this is what everyone's praying for. You get it, and your response is to run away. What is wrong with you? And without a proper understanding of things, I'm like, you are an idiot. And I yell at it because he's not there. And but I'm kind of wrong, but that's just the way that it looks. I'm like, why would you run away when God Almighty just told you, and where are you going to run away from the presence of God? It's like, Almighty Creator God who created the heavens and the earth, who's everywhere, I'm going to run away and hide from you. Like, how is that supposed to work? And so I'm looking at this, I'm like, why, why would he do this? And it didn't make sense to me until I was in Bible college, and my, I had a professor who just loved history. And so he, he takes this and he goes, okay, before we get to Jonah, he just told him to go to Nineveh so let's look at Nineveh. Like, okay, let's look at Nineveh. He's like, it's the capital of Assyria. And I'm like, why do I care? Like, what does Assyria have to do with anything? And he goes, you have to understand, Assyria was famous. Assyria was a a world-dominating power. It was one of the the premier nations at that time, but it had a different battle tactic that made it famous. See, they figured out that siege— Laying siege to a city can take a really long time. You get your whole army together. You show up at the city. The city hides behind its walls. They've got lots of food stored up on the inside. You're now trying to feed an army, pay an army, trying to starve them out, and it can take years if it's a big city and got good walls, and it's just a mess. So they came up with an idea. They said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to do that, and we're going to take this city. If When we show up, the city just opens up and says, all right, we surrender. We're going to take them from their home, and we're going to remove them to some place far away so that they lose their national identity and they lose the odds of a second rebellion up against us. But if they decide to fight us, we're going to be the most brutal people that have ever walked the earth. And they were literally famous for, like, skinning people alive dismembering them, um, the rip, yeah, pulling out tongues and um, if you didn't do things their way and surrender the nice way, then they would actually lead you into captivity with hooks. Either one, uh, one translation kind of makes it sound like it's through your lip. I've heard it's through here, so through that nice bone there so that you can't escape and you'll stay in line as they pull you along. And their, their tactic was going, if you know that if you fight me, I am probably going to win in a matter of time and it's gonna be horrible for you. But if you just surrender, it's only gonna be bad. They're like, we're gonna save years of siege. We're gonna save all sorts of money by being brutal. So this nation literally was like famous for terrorizing people. They were famous for their bloodshed and absolute brutality. And so when he hears, God goes, go to Nineveh. He's like, no. If I go there, you might forgive them. I would rather they all die and burn in hell. And like, that's literally his stance. And he's sitting here, he's going, I don't want to go there. I don't want them to, if I go over there and tell them they're wrong, they might just decide to turn me inside out. If I go there and they listen to me, then you might forgive them. And he's like, i I'm running. And so he runs, and in in verse, uh, the latter half of verse three, it says, he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And I'm like, okay, so he's running away from God because he doesn't want, he's either afraid or he doesn't want them to be forgiven. And so I'm, I'm looking, okay, so why did he run away from God? This just seems Stupid. But that's what sin does. Sin, guilt, shame, they bring separation. If you go back to the very first sin, you go back to Genesis' very first sin, Adam and Eve sin. They do the one thing God told them not to do. God shows up, the first thing that they do is they said they heard the sound of the the Lord walking in the garden, and they hid themselves. And it's just, it's right there, and it hasn't changed. I have four kids, Benai, Ezekiel, Titus, and Esther. My kids are awesome, my kids sometimes do things they're not supposed to do. When they're doing things that they're not supposed to do, you know who they don't want to see? Dad. Most of all, they don't want to see dad. And you'll watch, and all of a sudden, you're like, hey, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing. Uh-huh. And they're like, what's behind your back? There's something behind my back? Yes, there's something behind your back. You're going to show me. Really? Yes. <laughs> And he's debating, going, and then you're like, don't tell a lie, because that'll be worse. Uh, uh, okay. And then they bust it out. Or my daughter. My daughter's two. And we'll be, like, hanging out, and all of a sudden, you're like, have you seen Esther? Where, where, I don't hear Esther. Where's Esther? If you can't hear her, and you don't see her, what that means is my two-year-old found my old phone. And my two-year-old knows how to open the thing up, get on the PBS, kids, and find Pinkalicious. And so if you can't find her, go find some corner and she'll be hiding with my phone trying to watch Pinkalicious. you like, why are you hiding? Because I know I'm doing something, like she knows she's doing something wrong so she'll go and try to hide. And it's this thing that sin brings separation. Sin separates us. Ultimately, sin separates us from God. And we see Jonah... As he begins to run away from God. The Bible says that we have an enemy who is the accuser of our brothers, who has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. If we see our sin as before us, we will run from the presence of God. If we see ourselves marked by our sins and by our failures, we will run from intimacy with God. And, and you may come to church because you know you're supposed to be there, especially if you've been like grown up somewhat religious and then you, you feel like you're, you're caught in a sin. There's like this conundrum that happens inside of you where half of you is like, I need to go and I need to be there and I need to be like, it's almost like penance. Like I need to do all these right things to try to make up for the wrong. But at the same time, I'm afraid to actually enter into God's presence because I'm guilty and I'm shameful. And there's this, this like tearing up and this battle that can often happen inside. And Jesus said it this way. He says that, um, the light is coming to the world and, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It so says when, when we're choosing that path, we, we run from his presence. But that's, that's not what God wants. And as we, 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 we fall, get back to Jonah, he runs onto this boat and he gets on the boat and he pays the fare and they're like, hey, where are you going? He's like, anywhere but that way. And they're like, we're going this way, perfect. They're like, why do you just want to go that way somewhere? He's like, oh, I'm running away from God. And they're like, okay, cool. Because at that time, most of the world worshipped little statues. And if you are running away from a little wood carving, they're like, pay us, I don't care. They're like, whatever. And so they're just like, he's running away from a statue. Welcome aboard, pay us the money. He pays the money. They get on the boat, Ta- boat takes off. They get out just to sea and a storm comes, a massive storm from the Lord opposing him as he's trying to run away from God. And the sailors are freaking out. And as they're freaking out, they're like bailing water off the side. They're starting to throw their cargo overboard. This is starting to cost them. And then they're like, hey, like this is, this is, we've been sailors for a long time. This is not a normal storm. This is ridiculous. This storm is someone's fault. Where's Jonah? Where, where? He's sleeping. in the bottom of the boat. And the guy goes in the boat and he's like, Jonah, get up, you sleeper. That's like, it just sounds kind of weird. You call him a sleeper, but that's what he does. He calls him a sleeper. He's like, you get up. And uh, he's like, call to your God. Like, maybe he'll save us. And he actually asks Jonah to pray. He doesn't pray. Everyone's life is in danger. Jonah's response, huh. And he just like, doesn't care. And it like blows my mind. Everybody else cares. Everybody else is trying to save the ship, trying to save everyone's life, throwing away all of their stuff. And Jonah's like, yeah, that, that's bad. Then they're like, all right, this is so bad. It's got to be somebody's fault. Everybody, we're drawing straws. And so they get over there. Jonah gets the short straw. And they're like, Jonah, what did you do? Why is this storm here? And he looks at them and he goes, I'm an Israelite. And I serve the one true living God. And they go, oh, no. We knew you were running away from God. We thought it was a little wood statue. You're telling me that you're running away from the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? They're like, we are in serious trouble. We have got to get you back. And he's like, if you want the storm to stop, kill me. Throw me overboard, middle of the sea. I look at that, I'm like, you, how bitter is this guy that he would rather die, he's ready to endanger everybody else's life to make sure that Nineveh doesn't get preached to. It can't be just about his own personal fear because he's ready to, to die. And they try, and they try to save him, and they try to row back, and he's like, and nothing's going to happen. And finally, they're like, that's it, Jonah. I'm sorry. They're like, God, please don't hold, hold this innocent, uh, our blood, his blood, on us. And they pitch him overboard. They pitch him overboard, and it goes flat. And they're like, this is creepy. This is crazy. And they start offering sacrifices to God. They throw Jonah overboard, and then we get our like, our strange excitement. The Bible says that the Lord prepared a fish. Now, I don't know if this was like a sperm whale that God gave indigestion to so that he wouldn't digest Jonah. If this was like the Jonah fish, it was a one of a kind that God made for this special occasion that had large extra stomachs that had some air in them, I don't know. But whatever the case, a large sea creature swallows Jonah. Now, you find this in... Chapter one, verse 17 says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter two, verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish. Now, maybe the verse 17 is an overview because this was written later, but the way that it reads sounds like he sat in the belly of the fish going, die, Nineveh, die, no one's, going to tell, no one's going to preach to you. I'm dying here, and so are you. Like, he's just like this bitter little man. And he goes through, and he opposes God, and finally in there, he's like, okay, all right, God, I give up. Fine. And chapter two, he repents. He prays to God. After he, he prays to God, God speaks to the fish. The fish goes up to dry land and vomits Jonah up. That's kind of gross, but that's what it says. And then chapter 3, verse 1, this is, in my opinion, this is the most beautiful verse in the book. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. See, and this, this, this blows my mind because if I was God, he would have gotten digested. I'd have been like, you fool. You thought you could run away from me. You thought I will find somebody else. You are fish food. But, but God, like there's this wicked people that God wants to reach. And so he's going to use this self-righteous, selfish goober and he calls him and he runs away from God. And he, he's ready for other people to die so that he doesn't have to fulfill this mission and, and possibly reach these people. And then God still has grace, still has mercy. And when he gets spits out, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And I look at this and I'm like, yeah, but that's, that's crazy because so often we do stupid things. And we make mistakes. And we look and we go, all right, man, God had a plan for me. I'm sure that God wanted to use me, but not anymore. You don't understand where I fail. You don't understand I'm not good enough. You don't understand the things that I've done. You don't understand what I've looked at. You don't understand what, what I've said. You don't understand where I cheated. You don't understand how I lied. You don't understand, and we have all of these things that we we, we, we make these mistakes and somehow we go, I am my mistake. And we go, this is the lens that is me. And we, we, we read that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And he sits here and he looks at you and says, you're no good. You're a failure. You're a liar. You're a cheater. You're never going to be. God could never use you. God loved you until you did. You made too many mistakes. You failed again. God's done with you. And this is what the devil tries to do. And the devil paints all of these these lies, and he says that that you can't be anything else because of what you've done. But there's a beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He goes, what you were is not what you are. Does not matter where you sinned, where you messed up, how many times you failed. He goes, what you are is not based by what they were, but based on the blood of Jesus because you have been sanctified, you have been redeemed, you are a new creation. See, the devil says a lot of things, but God says that you are a new creation, that you're forgiven, that you are called, that you are chosen, that you are redeemed, that you are seated with Christ, that you are reconciled, that you are commissioned, that you are hidden in Christ, desired by God, and that you are more than a conqueror. But so often we go, well, but God couldn't use me. And I I look at this and this brings me such hope because God goes, God was still willing to use Jonah after Jonah had that amazing encounter where God speaks to him and he chose to run away anyways. And then I watch Jonah as he goes to Nineveh and he begins to preach. And he begins to preach hoping that they would all die. He gets up there and says, that's it. You guys are evil and you're going to die. Yep, God's going to kill you. Yep. You have been opposing God and you're going to die. And they look at him and they're like, hmm, we are evil. If there was a God, it would make sense that he would be mad at us. This is bad. And I don't know if it was just because Jonah preached or if he was like bleached white from being inside some kind of a fish or if there was like some kind of like stench they look at him and they're like, what happened to you? And he's like, oh yeah, I got swallowed by a fish because I didn't want to preach to you. Like, I don't know what it was that made him so convincing, but literally the whole city, well over a hundred thousand people looked and were like, this is not okay. We are going to repent. The king says, that's it. We're going to repent. And he says, We're going to turn from our wicked ways. We are going to fast. We are going to it says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands with their king's decree, Jonah, or Jonah 3.8. And they turn. And then Jonah gets mad. Because Jonah goes up on the top of the hill and he's like, I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch them get destroyed. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits, and God saw them repent, and God relented, and Jonah gets mad. And in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, you hear the strangest complaint you've ever heard. But it says, it displeased Jonah. He was exceedingly angry, and he prayed to the Lord, "Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? That this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious, God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Have you ever heard anyone complain that you are gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from sending disaster? I'm like, what are you doing? If he was not kind, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, you'd be a French fry by now. But, but this is his complaint against God because Jonah was still holding on to unforgiveness. Jonah still wanted to see them fry. And as I begin to look at this, I begin to discover there's a God who wants to forgive you. But a God who wants to, forgiveness granted is not necessarily forgiveness received. And a lot of us have heard the story before that God wants to forgive you. A lot of you have heard the verse that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And you're like, yeah, that's That's great. And a lot of us turn around and go, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. Because the the devil feeds us this lie. And he says, well, God couldn't love you. Not anymore. And and this became clear to me when I looked at Joseph, actually looking at Joseph's brothers. I'm going to give you the the really short version of Joseph, if if you're not familiar with his story. Joseph has got a bunch of older brothers, 10 of them. And then he ends up with one little brother. Joseph's 10 brothers don't like Joseph because Joseph's dad likes him the most. Joseph's dad honors him. Joseph's dad gives him this present of this really cool looking jacket. His brothers are jealous. And in response, one day he goes to check on his brothers and they're like, you know, I hate you. You know what? I think we'd be better off without you. And so they beat up Joseph. And there's an old dried up well. And so they just throw him in it. And they're like, you know what? We're going to kill you after lunch. And so they, they throw him in the well. <clears throat> and they go con- to continue their meal. And they're, they've been out there watching the sheep. And then one of them sees a caravan. And, and he goes, hey, guys, <clears throat> I got an idea. If we kill Joseph, what do we get? Nothing. And we have his blood on our hands. But if we sell our brother, then we didn't kill him and we get paid. And the rest of the brothers are like, yeah, that works for me. So the caravan comes, and they're like, hey guys, you want to buy a slave? And they're like, "Uh, yeah, sure. And so they sell Joseph. Joseph goes into, they they take Joseph to Egypt. They sell him there. He becomes a slave there in Egypt. All sorts of things happen in Egypt. Important part is Joseph ends up in, in Pharaoh's palace, interprets a dream and becomes the second most powerful person in the world as he gets appointed to, to rule all of Egypt, which at that time was a superpower. And so, so he, he gets this great position. <clears throat> there's this massive um, years of abundance that he prophesied would, would come from a dream that he interpreted. And then there's going to be this years of famine. And he's managing things. And during this time, his brothers come. Now, from when they beat him up and when they sold him, it has now been 20 years. They show up, and Joseph, who they thought was dead, has grown up a lot in the last 20 years. And they don't recognize him. And he sees them, and he recognizes his brothers. And he's like, hmm, I wonder if they've changed at all. Say, I'm going to kind of test their hearts a little bit. And so... He gives them a little bit of a hard time. He's like, who are you? Where'd you come from? Are you guys spies? And he's speaking through an interpreter, so they don't think that he can understand him. And when they do, it's been 20 years. And this is what they say. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when, we begged, <clears throat> when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 20 years. Something goes wrong, instantly. It's because of what we did to Joseph. Time does not make guilt go away. It's been twenty years. But every when something goes wrong, ah, oh, it's because of what we did to Joseph. And the story keeps going, story keeps going, and, and they're there, they leave, they come back. It's now been twenty-two years when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and he goes, Hey guys, I'm Joseph. And they go, crud. Because they really, they anticipated him taking their heads off because he now has the authority in Egypt to just be like, kill them, torture them, do whatever you want to them. He, anything he says, they're going to do. And so they're really nervous. And he goes, guys, guys, I forgive you. You guys tried to harm me. God had a good plan for me. God's using me to save the world. It is great. I, God, don't worry about it we're going to move on, move the family here. And, and they're like, okay, okay. And so they do this. They go get the rest of the family. They all move there. 17 more years go by. So we're now at 39 years. 39 years since their offense. It's been 17 years since he revealed himself to them and he told them that he forgave them. Their dad dies. As soon as their dad dies, all the brothers get together and they're like, we need to tell Joseph that dad's dying request was that he'd be nice to us. Because they are sure that he's still angry and that he's gonna take it back on them. Like he forgave them decades ago, but they never forgave them. And because they didn't forgive themselves, they couldn't see how anybody else could either. And a lot of times God offers us forgiveness and we look and we go, but, but I don't know how to forgive me. And if I don't forgive me, how could I think that you'd forgive me? And how could I think that anybody else could ever forgive me? But the Bible says that God wants to forgive you. That according to Jonah's complaint, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love and steadfast love and relenting from sending disaster. There's a guy named George Wilson. George Wilson um, committed a crime along with a friend. They, actually, they committed six crimes. Um, and the penalty at the time was death for some of the crimes that they committed. And so his, his friend was executed. And then, um, but George had some powerful friends, and they spoke to the president on his behalf and President Andrew Jackson issued him a pardon and said, you know, you are pardoned from your, your, uh, this crime and you're pardoned from the penalty of this crime. And he went to issue it. And they issued it and they brought it to George. And George said, I don't accept it. And they're like, what do you, what do you mean you don't accept it? What idiot doesn't accept a pardon? You're going to die. And He goes... I committed the crime. I'll pay the penalty. They go, no, you have to accept, you have to accept it. He goes, no, I don't. And then the, the courts were trying to decide, does he have to accept the pardon? And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court declared that the, the forgiveness, that the pardon, how how'd they word it? it says that the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It's a grant to him. It is his property. And he may accept it or not as he pleases. Our courts recognize that you can be forgiven and refuse to receive it. I remember after a service where I taught, having a lady come up to me after service, and she comes up, and you could see that there was some emotion that was close to the surface. And as soon as she starts talking, starts out with, I haven't told anybody this. And the tears begin to flow. 20 years ago, I had an abortion. And then she just began to cry. For 20 years, she has felt like God couldn't love her, that God couldn't accept her because she wouldn't forgive her She refused to receive the forgiveness that he offered. And that day she's like, God, thank you that even though I've failed, even though I've sinned, even though what I've done was wrong, that you didn't give up on me and that you want to forgive me. And she got set free. There are people in here today that are gonna leave free because God loves you and God wants his forgiveness to flow to you. He's offered it. It's been on the table for 2,000 years. But just because the pardon's written doesn't mean the pardon's been received. And I have to say, some of you guys are, are not the one waiting for a pardon, but the Bible says that we've been reconciled to Christ and that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That just like Jonah was sent to bring forgiveness, we too are called to carry his forgiveness. And I believe that there are some here who need to receive that forgiveness. And there, there are others who need to carry it to those in their world. Can everyone bow their heads and close their eyes? If you're here, And you've not received that forgiveness. You may have known about it. You may have known about God's love, may have known about his pardon, but you have not received it. You have not made him the Lord of your life. You've not let his forgiveness come in and wash you clean. Today, you have an opportunity to make him the Lord of your life and receive that forgiveness. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, when I count to three, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Say, that's me. Awesome. I see your hand and your hand. Who else says that? that's me? Awesome. Awesome. All right. Another one back there. All right. You can put your hands down. This is the most important decision that anybody ever makes. In the Bible, God made a promise: it said that whoever calls on his name will be saved. So that's what we're going to do. So, whether you raise your hand or you've done that before, then go ahead and join me as we declare Him to be our Lord, as we receive the gift that He poured out for us. Go ahead and say, God, thank you for loving me. I believe that you died and rose again. Thank you for washing my sins away. I choose to live for you from this day forward. I declare that you are my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Give them a really big hand.